let's see what's in store for us here in Revelation chapter 11. If you're there, say amen. Okay, here we go. And there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now remember, we're in the great tribulation. Remember what's happened now is John, Revelation chapter 1, is in the Lord's day, was in the spirit, and God brought him into the book of Revelation. And I believe personally what was happening here in the great tribulation is John is, tr- is transported by the spirit into the seven years of great tribulation, which is even future for us. He's in first century Patmos Island out of the Mediterranean, but he's transported by the spirit to see the great tribulation. The church has already been raptured. We've already seen the seven, uh, seven uh, seals of judgment come. We've already seen some of the seven trumpets. And now what he sees is he sees this temple in Jerusalem. Now that's interesting because if you go to Jerusalem today, guess what? There's no temple. Now the temple originated as a tent. If you go all the way back to uh, the Old Testament, what happened was as the Jews were in their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they, they built a tabernacle, a tent, and it had to be a tent because whenever the cloud would move and whenever the pillar of fire would move, they'd have to take it down and then they'd have to bring it to another place. But it was the place of worship. It was the place where the Ark of the Covenant was at. It was the place where God's presence was at. It was the temple. It was, the tabernacle was the temple. But then, as they got into the promised land and King David became the king, remember, he built a palace in his city of Jerusalem. And as he was in his palace one day, he said, what? What do I have a palace for when God's presence is in a tent? And David said to his prophet Nathan, he said, I, I want to I build a beautiful building for God now too. And Nathan said, yeah, that's a great idea. Until Nathan got home that night. And God spoke to Nathan and said, no, David is not to be the man to build a temple because his hands are bloody. He's a man of war. It's not, not going to happen in his generation as king. And so David got everything in place for the temple He got all the gold, the silver, all the supplies, and he got it ready for his son Solomon, and then Solomon built the temple. It's a beautiful story in the Old Testament. As he built the temple, the glory of God filled the temple, and it was just an incredible time of worship as they started after the temple was built. But then after the temple was built, the people went into his period of idolatry with the kings and and all those high places and everything else, and then God in the 500 B.C.'s, what he did was he brought an enemy in, Babylon, and he allowed the enemy to conquer Israel. And Nebuchadnezzar came into the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. But then later, after Nebuchadnezzar's empire was gone and Persia became the world, world empire, there was a king named Cyrus. And Cyrus said, okay, Jews, you could go back to Jerusalem and you go back to Israel and you could rebuild your temple. And there was a man named Zerubbabel that was in charge of the rebuilding of the temple. And the temple was rebuilt. But then there was another period in the 200s B.C. that there was uh, another king. It was Antiquus uh, Epiphanes. He came in, again, conquered the city of Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and then pretty much tore it apart. But then Herod the Great came on right at the time of Jesus and he fixed it and made it a beautiful temple again. And then what happened was the Jewish nation as a whole rejected the Messiah Jesus and Jesus wept over the city of Jerusalem And then Jesus also said, all the stones, disciples, that you see in this temple will soon be taken down. And they were. In 70 AD, the Roman general Titus came in and flattened the city of Jerusalem, burned the temple to the ground. And to this day, there's not a stone of the temple up of the building of the temple. Now, there's the Western Wall. 
The Western Wall is 186 feet high. It's where the Jews come and pray. And one of the things the Jews pray at the Western Wall is, Lord, please give us our temple back. And they actually have places in the wall where they put pieces of paper, and some of those papers have prayers in them praying for the resurrection of their temple. Why is that important to the Jewish people? It's important to the Jewish people because the temples where the sacrifices happen, and their Old Testament law says there's no forgiveness of sin except for sacrifices. For the last two millennials, there's been no temple and there's been no sacrifices. Now, no, we know as Christians, we're okay because what's our sacrifice? Jesus died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. But in the Jewish mentality, we have to have our temple back because there's no sacrifices going on. And to this day, there's a place in Jerusalem you could go to. I love going there when we visit Israel. It's called the Temple Institute. And there are already a whole organization of people that are ready for the rebuilding of the temple. They have the menorah sized to the, the biblical sizes of them. It's already built. They already have everything for the temple ready, except for the Ark of the Covenant. And word on the street in Jerusalem is they don't have, have the Ark of the Covenant rebuilt because they have it under, some people say they have it under the temple mount in a secret, concreted off area, tunnel. And they're just keeping it there until the temple's rebuilt. Now, interesting thing, go back to Revelation 11, 1. What is, what is John told to measure here? What's he told to measure? The temple. The temple's not rebuilt. So what's going to happen during the Great Tribulation? The temple is going to be rebuilt, which is remarkable because the temple is going to be rebuilt, I believe, side by side with the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is the place of worship. It's the third most uh, uh, holy site for the Muslim world. And the Muslims are going to be at the Dome of the Rock. If you look at that right there, the gold dome right there, that's the Dome of the Rock. And right next to that is the Eastern Gate. When you come in the Eastern Gate, they're going to rebuild the temple right next to that. And you're going to have Jews in the temple worshiping their God right next to the Dome of the Rock, the third most holy site for the Muslim world, where there's Muslims worshiping. Now, that's unheard of. And the main reason why the Jews haven't rebuilt their temple to this day is because they know it will lead to a holy war if they rebuild it right now because of the hatred of the Muslim world towards the Jewish world. But what is the Antichrist going to be? Daniel 9.27 says he's going to be a peacemaker that actually is going to have a covenant with the world for one week. And part of his covenant is a peace treaty between Jews and Muslims to the point that he's going to have them worshiping side by side on the Temple Mount. And a part of the Antichrist getting his power and his dominion worldwide is the peace he's going to bring between Jews and Muslims. It's, it's going to be a fascinating from heaven. Our perspective will be from heaven to see this thing whole play out with the rebuilding of the temple and the reuniting of these two world religions, Judaism and the Muslim world. Again, the temple site right now, the Jews don't dare build a temple right now because it's going to lead to a holy war. And because the, the Muslim world actually believes that the temple mount is a place where Muhammad we had an ascension into heaven from the rock of the t- Temple Mount. He ascended into heaven, got the Koran, and then came back with the Koran. That's their holy site. And so this is what's going to happen to the Great Tribulation. The temple will be rebuilt, and there will be a peace treaty between the Muslim world and the Jewish world, worshiping side by side, and there will be a one-world religion. 
And then it says in verse two, and leave out the court which is outside the temple and don't measure it for it's been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Now, outside the temple, it says you don't measure that because it's given to the nations. And outside the temple is where the Dome of the Rock's gonna be. And that's gonna be the nations, the, the pagan nations worshiping uh, uh, the, the, the Muslim, get, Muslim God during this period of 42 months, which is three and a half years. But notice what God does. That's the temple. Now let's look at the two witnesses. Verse three. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they'll prophesy for 1260 days, that's three and a half years, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So in the midst of this antichrist-controlled world, in the midst of the great tribulation, amidst of this beast of the antichrist controlling the world, politically, economically, and religiously, two great witnesses come on the scene. How could there be great witnesses in a world that's gone to hell? Because first of all, it says authority has been granted to them. Look back at that. It says, for I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And that's the first principle for being a good witness. You need to understand, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've been given his authority to be a witness in this world. No matter how bad it gets, you've been given his authority to be a witness for him. And you shouldn't be ashamed of the gospel he's given you. Remember what Paul said in Romans 1.16? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation, whoever believes. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, he says, all authority has been given to me. And so because this authority has been given to me, I tell you, go, make disciples of all the nations. Matthew 28, 18 and 19. So we need to remember, first of all, if we're gonna be witnesses like these two witnesses, authority has been given to us, power has been given to us. We need to realize that we're going in Jesus' name to people to be the light of the world, man. And listen, don't be ashamed of the gospel that saved you. I remember when I was being witnessed to as a lost, rebellious, out there teenager. And these, these people are witnessing to me. They, they just didn't back off and they weren't ashamed of what they believed in. And there was an authority in their lives because they were standing on the truth. They were being witnessed. What does a witness in court do? He puts his hand on the Bible and he swears that he's gonna tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, what? So help me God. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to give people the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God with God's authority. And I remember the, this one young man that witnessed to me every day on the way home from, uh, from uh, school, every day we walked the same route back to school. It's back before school buses, and we just walked to, walked to school, right? And I remember walking home with him every day, and I was his project for six months because he was an on-fire Christian. And I remember this guy wouldn't back off. And he wouldn't, he wouldn't back off on the fact of what he believed to be the truth. And I, I got into debates with him. I argued with him. I belittled him. And he wouldn't back off. And then one day I just got sick of it. And I said to him, will you just back off with this thing? And I said, don't you know I'm a Christian already? I go to church at least on Christmas and Easter. I'm an American. Come on, I'm a Christian. Leave me alone. I'll never forget what he said to me. With authority, he said this. He looked me right in the eye. And he said, John Hoppy, you wouldn't be living the way you're living if you were really saved and you were a Christian. And man, that made me mad. You know why it made me mad? Because he was absolutely right. I was immoral with my girlfriend. I swore like a sailor. I was getting drunk or high every weekend just about. 
And he said, you wouldn't be living the way you're living if you're really a Christian. And if you don't get saved, he told me this. He said, and if you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell. I said, thank you very much. But I was angry. You know why I was angry? Because he was telling me the truth. And his light was shining into my darkness. And he was telling me with authority that he knew what he was talking about. And he did. That was a turning point in my, in my pilgrimage with God. Shortly after that, I finally bent my knee because I had someone tell me the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help him God. Let's do that for some other people, amen? Let's be people that have the authority of God to tell people the truth of God so we could see more people get saved and go to heaven instead of hell. And that's what the two witnesses are now doing now during this three and a half year period. They had authority to be God's witnesses. And notice also, they're olive trees, and there are lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, what does that mean? That's an imagery that goes back to the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 4. And let's look at that. Zechariah chapter 4, up on the screen. This is a description of what was told to Zerubbabel as he's rebuilding the temple and losing some steam. He's losing heart because of the persecution in, uh, from the enemies of God. And he's tempted Zerubbabel to quit and so the prophet Zechariah spoke these words in his Zerubbabel's life. He said, Then the angel who had been speaking with me returned and woke me like a person who's awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand, all of gold, with its bowl on the top of it, and seven lamps on it, with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps, which are on top of it. I'll give the next slide. Also, two, here it is, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl, one on the other side, on the left side. Then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? And so the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, I don't know, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord that is Rebbebel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but what? But by my spirit, saith the Lord. So the imagery to Zechariah for Zerubbabel was this, is that he's seeing, he's seeing this lampstand, and it's being filled with oil from an olive tree. And it's a constant filling of the, of the oil to this lampstand so that the lampstand could burn brightly. And then he's told, hey, you're going to do this for God, not by your might nor by your power, but by my spirit. Here's the second principle. That was an amen from the Lord right there. I thought it was lightning or something. But here's, here's the second principle. Second principle is this. If you want to be a witness in these in 2020, if you want to be a witness, you need to not only go with God's authority and tell people the whole truth so it'll help you God, but the second thing we're seeing from these two witnesses is you need to be a spirit-filled believer because we're not going to lead anybody to Christ apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. It, it has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's why Jesus said you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be witnesses. And we can't have this this ability to lead people from hell to heaven apart from the power of the Holy Spirit working in us and through us. So the question is, how do we get that power? Well, first of all, we all have the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, if you believed in the Lord, the gospel of your truth, and you received the message of the truth, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. But here's the question, does the Holy Spirit have you? Are you living a spirit-filled life? And the only way we could be spirit-filled Christians is living a spirit-filled life. And we're told in Ephesians 5, 18 to 20, what the spirit-filled life is. It says, don't get drunk with wine, that's dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to God our Father. So if you want to be a spiritual Christian, you've got to live a spiritual life. And what does that involve? It involves being a person that's a person of worship, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, always being a person of thanksgiving. Instead of complaining, you're to be a thankful person. That, that's a part of the spiritual life. Also, be a person of the word, where you're speaking, actually, the word of God to other people because the word of God's in your heart. It's a part of your life. Also, a part of being a spiritual Christian is being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Have, have Christian relationships. You're in subject to one another in fellowship. Listen, church, you'll never be a spirit-filled Christian that's being a strong witness, a faithful witness for Christ, apart from being in fellowship with other Christians. You can't do it. I can't do it. I need you guys, and we need each other. And that's why the Bible says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembly together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as the day draws near. And here's what church does for you, too. You come to church, you get your tanks filled. I don't know about you, but when we were singing that last song, both services this morning, as we were singing about God's goodness and the evidence of God's goodness, I was getting my tank filled with God's Holy Spirit. And I need my tank to be filled because I need to be out there during the week being a witness for Jesus Christ. And the only way I could be a witness is to be a spirit-filled Christian that's filled with the olive oil of the Spirit and is a lampstand because of that. We need each other. Don't let any person ever tell you you don't need church. Don't t- I've heard people say, I don't need church. I'm just going to sit out in the park on Sunday morning or in my fishing boat. I'll have my Bible and I'll catch some fish and I'll praise the Lord. Hey, good luck with that. I have never met an on-fire Christian that's being a strong witness for Jesus Christ that's not in close fellowship and part of a local church. And, because a local church is the body of Christ, the body of Christ, bride of Christ. It's the place where you get your tank filled, where you get spirit-filled living going on. We need each other. Amen? So the two witnesses, they weren't ashamed. They had the authority of Christ, and they went with the authority of Christ in their witnessing. Second thing, they were spirit-filled. They were like olive trees. They were lampstands because they had their, their tank filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on, and it also says about these two witnesses, and I will grant authority to the two witnesses. They'll prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now look at the power. Look at verse 5. And if anyone desires to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone would desire to harm them in this matter, he must be killed. These have the power to shut up the sky in order that rain may not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power. See the word power being emphasized? power over the waters to turn them into blood, to smite the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now, does this look familiar at all to you? We see two of the witnesses here being prophets. Not only are they prophets, but we see the first witness, we see fire proceeds out of his mouth, and he has the power to shut up, the, uh, to turn waters to, into blood, to smite the earth with every plague. No, before that, power, fire proceeding out of his mouth, and if anyone desires to hurt him, he must be killed, and they have the power to shut up the sky. I, this last week, I wish I had that power. I don't know about you, but I felt like building an ark this last week. It just kept raining. But we see the first prophet has the power to bring fire down from heaven. That'd be kind of cool, too. As they face opposition, he's like a dragon. He's just burning people. Say, so quit persecuting me. And then fire comes out of his mouth. But not only that, there's another guy, another prophet, 
that has the ability to turn water into blood and then to also bring plagues to the earth. Does that sound familiar? What did Elijah have the power to do? He brought fire down from heaven at the prophets of Baal at the altar. And not only that, he was able to stop up the skies. We're told in James 5, 17, that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't rain on the earth for three and a half years, for three years and six months. That's Elijah. What did Moses do? He turned the Nile into blood, right? And not only that, he brought the ten plagues. And so many Bible scholars believe these two witnesses, these two prophets, are the Moses and Elijah sent to earth to be witnesses for these three and a half years. I think it's a very good chance they are. And why do I believe that? Because they've already been there after their, after their departure to heaven. Remember, Peter, James, and John were brought up to the Mount of Transfiguration, and Peter, as normal, fell asleep. And when he woke up, he saw Jesus in the glorified state. And who was Jesus talking to? Moses and Elijah, brought back to earth. Now, some people believe that these two witnesses might not be Moses and Elijah, might be Enoch and Elijah, because Enoch and Elijah, Enoch walked with God and he was no more. He was like raptured out of here. He didn't die physically. Elijah was taken out of here on a chariot of fire, didn't die physically either. So they believe it was Enoch and Elijah because they never died physically and their physical bodies were just brought back. Could be either. All I know is they were incredible witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ for three and a half years, even though there was great opposition and I also know, listen, I also know they had great power. And that's the last thing I want to tell you about being a witness. If you want to be a great witness for Christ, you need to not be ashamed of what you believe. You need to go with the authority of God's truth. You need to be spirit-filled, but you also need to be people that have power. And the power comes from the Holy Spirit, but people have to see the power of Christ in our lives. And how do they see that today? I think one of the greatest ways people see the power of Christ in our lives today by living a drastically changed life, because if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, what? The old is gone, the new has come. And when people see the power of a changed life, boy, that's a big part of our witness. You know, the Bible says, Revelation 12, 11, next chapter, it says that the evil one is the accuser of the brethren, but we overcome the evil one with the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And one of the greatest things we do in our witnessing is just tell people, hey, Jesus saved me, he's changed me, and my life is totally different. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I once was going to hell, and now I'm going to heaven. And it's hard to argue with a changed life, right? And that's a part of giving the defense of, what, of the hope that is within us, is telling people, God's changed my life. And then people seeing that he's changed our lives too. You can't be a worldly Christian and be a good witness. The Bible says, don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And if you're swearing like the rest of the world, if you're immoral like the rest of the world, if you're lying like the rest of the world, if you're stealing like the rest of the world, and you're living like the rest of the world, you are not gonna be a strong witness because people are gonna say, hey, it didn't make a difference in that person's life. But again, when I came to Christ, there was a, about 100 high school students in our high school that had been radically changed by the power of God. And one of the greatest things they didn't witness to me was just to be Christians in front of me. I saw that these people were different. They talked differently than me, they lived differently than me, and they loved differently than I did. They actually cared about people unconditionally, and it 
boy, it, it radically changed my life to see the witness of changed lives like that. We overcome the evil one by the word of our testimony. Amen? And so there's power here in these, in these witnesses. And so let's go on now. Verse 7, and when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Now, what, where is this? I believe it's Jerusalem. Because where was Jesus crucified? Jerusalem. So why do they call it Sodom and Egypt? Because Sodom was a place of immorality. Jerusalem, under the Antichrist, became a place of immorality. Egypt was a place of idolatry. And then we're going to see uh, uh, also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, we're told that uh, the Antichrist is actually going to put his image in the temple and have all the world in idolatry worship him from the temple of God in Jerusalem. That says 2 Thessalonians 2, 4, it says, uh, the Antichrist who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That's what the Antichrist is going to do in the temple. So Jerusalem's going to become a place of idolatry. And notice what they're going to do with the two witnesses. It's amazing. They're going to have a satanic Christmas. They're going to kill the two witnesses. These people that are trying to save them, they're going to kill them. And then it's interesting because it says they're going to have every tribe, every people, every nation witnessing that these two witnesses are dead on the streets of Jerusalem, and then they're going to have a satanic Christmas. They're going to not only rejoice, they're going to be celebrating with gifts to one another. Our world is so crooked, isn't it? So perverse. And they're going to be killing these guys, and then for three and a half years, they're going to be keeping these two witnesses on the street, and they're going to be witnessing it for the whole world. Now, uh, critical scholars for years, for centuries, said this is impossible. How could every tribe and nation and people be watching one event in the small country of Israel in the city of Jerusalem. How could every tribe, nation, people, that's impossible. Can you say CNN? Satellite news networks? It's possible today, isn't it? And they're going to be having a satanic Christmas rejoicing with the death of these two witnesses. Now, interesting to me, interesting to me. This is the only place in the great tribulation of the seven years of judgment where people are rejoicing. And what are they rejoicing about? The murder of these two witnesses. It's crazy. But there's another principle here, here for witnessing. And that is when you're really being a witness for Jesus Christ, there's going to be opposition. Why? Because all who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We're told by Jesus himself in the Gospel of John, he said, John 3, verses 19 and 20, and this is judgment, that the light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into the light so that his deeds will not be exposed. And then he said in John 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its, you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they followed my word, they will follow yours also. Do you see that? And so here's the deal. If you're being a strong witness for Jesus Christ, expect opposition. Because the darkness hates the light. And if you're not getting in opposition out there in the world, you need to ask yourself, Am I really living a godly life 
in Christ Jesus before a world that's watching. You need to ask yourself, am I really shining my light into their darkness? <clears throat> I remember the summer before I went to seminary, uh, my dad was famous for getting me the worst jobs possible. And uh, he, I think he purposely got me these jobs so that I would stay in school and get my degrees that I was supposed to get. But the summer before I went to Southern California to Fuller Theological Seminary, um, he talked to one of his friends that owned a road construction company in Chicago, and he got me a, a laborer job with road construction for four months. It's the worst job I've ever had. It was the hottest summer in the history of the city of Chicago. And I was shoveling asphalt the whole summer. I was doing jackhammers and stuff. And then the Lord, within the first couple of weeks, he told me, I want you to be a witness to all these other guys that are laborers. And I was the only college boy there. All the other laborers were what I would call lifers. What do I mean by that? They're going to be shoveling asphalt for the rest of their life. And then they found out that I got the job there because my dad knew the owner of that company, and I was a college boy. And then I share with them when the first couple of weeks, I was a Christian, and I was going to seminary, and it was like, wow, just open up opposition. I was called reverend the rest of the summer by these laborers. And they just, they roasted me every day of the week. And I remember I was trying to share Christ with them, and they would just, I mean, they'd share their immoral stories about their weekend ex- ex- exploits really loud, so I'd be in here at distance. They would just belittle me. They would rebuke me. They, they, they'd do whatever they can to make me miserable. And I remember about halfway through that summer, I just prayed, Lord, please, I need some help here. Fill me with your spirit, but also give me some help. And I remember I prayed that prayer within a week. I remember this station wagon drove up to the work site. It's an old beat-up station wagon. And I, I looked at this station wagon, and there was a holy Bible on the dash. It was like this big, one of those family holy Bibles. And I looked at the guy that was in the station wagon. His name was Frankie. I'll never forget Frankie, because he got out of the car. And it was like the Calvary was there. Not Calvary, the Calvary, you know, the, 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 the support troops. And he gets out of the, and I found out that he was an ordained African-American gospel preacher that did road construction. And he got out of that, that car, and he was singing gospel songs, and him and I became best friends for the rest of the summer. And we, do, we, we shoveled asphalt together singing gospel songs and singing about the glory of Jesus and trying to be a light to these guys who are around us. And we were a witness for the rest of that summer. Two are better than one. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. And so, you know, one of the things we could do, too, in being witnesses is we can, we, it's important we have support. Again, that we are in church. We have fellowship to be the light of the world because two are better than one. We lift each other up in that way. And so these guys are dead in the streets of Jerusalem, And notice verse 11, and after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into these two witnesses. Wow, this is awesome. CNN filming it. And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were beholding them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up into heaven in the cloud, and their enemies beheld them. And in that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake. And the rest were terrified, I bet they were, and they gave glory to the God of heaven. And the second woe is past, behold, the third woe is coming. So we're seeing these dead bodies on the streets for three and a half days, seeing worldwide participation and rejoicing and giving gifts to one another and celebrating that these guys that tormented them with the message of truth are dead. And all of a sudden, three and a half days into it, the breath of heaven comes into these guys. And this is awesome. Not only do they wake up, 
they stand up, and then they step on a cloud, beam me up, Jesus, and CNN's watching these guys come up to heaven with the breath of God filling them and bringing them life and bringing them to heaven. Now, that's interesting to me, because what have these guys been preaching? The gospel. And they've been preaching that for that you can be saved by looking to Jesus Christ and his death on the cross, but also believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead after three days. So after preaching about God having the ability to raise people from the dead for three days, they see visually God do this for the two witnesses, confirming their messages. That's awesome, isn't it? And then let's close up the chapter, verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded... And there arose loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has been the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign. He shall reign forever and ever. Does that sound familiar? Some of you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. That's called Handel's Messiah. My mom used to play this classical music every Christmas, and a part of the music was Handel's Messiah was right from this verse. He shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Okay, you're saying that's enough, enough, enough singing, Pastor John. Verse 16, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and they worshiped God. And they were saying, we give thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty who art, who was, because thou hast taken thy great power, you have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged and thy wrath came and the time came for the dead to be judged. Now we're gonna see that later in Revelation 20, with the great white throne of judgment. And the time to give the reward to thy bondservants, the prophets, and to the saints, to those who fear thy name, the small and the great, to destroy those who destroy the earth. And notice, the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. So here's what's happening here. What's happening is John now is transported from the Great Tribulation. He's transported to heaven. It's like an open house in heaven. And he sees the glory of the people rejoicing in heaven because God's justice is being done here on earth. And then he also sees a part of heaven sits the temple of God in heaven. Did you know that the temple that Moses was instructed uh, to build uh, with everything, with the, with the, with the uh, altar of sacrifice, with the holy place and then the holy of holy place and then the ark of the covenants with the throne and the mercy seat. That was all a, a, a design that was already in heaven. It was just a prototype of what's in heaven. And so in heaven, the temple of God is going to be in heaven. Ark of the covenant is going to be in heaven. And, and listen, what, what, what the Old Testament they were told to do is, is they were told to bring a lamb on the day of atonement to the altar of sacrifice outside the temple and then they would bring the blood from that sacrifice into the holy place. And then the high priest that one day, the Day of Atonement, would go behind that veil to the holy of holy place. And there was a mercy seat there above the Ark of the Covenant. He'd sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on that mercy seat. And that was the way that the people's sins were forgiven. Because within that Ark of the Covenant was the two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. And the only way that they could be forgiven for breaking those laws was by the sacrifice of the blood of the Lamb. So ultimately, when we get to heaven, we're going to see this temple of God. And we're going to see that the way that we're forgiven is by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. 
Interesting, in the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament, the priest would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, and then he'd go out, and he'd go out, and then he would, he would wave the blood on the people, and he would declare, forgiven, forgiven. People, you're forgiven because of the blood of the Lamb. And a part of our worship for the rest of eternity is going to be a lamb who is slain in heaven. That's what Revelation tells us, is Jesus will be like a lamb who is slain. His scars will be there in his hand, scars on his side, scars on his feet. He's going to be like a lamb who is slain, and we're going to be standing in heaven worshiping the lamb of God who is slain for us, and we're going to be given the affirmation by Jesus, our high priest, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. You're forgiven. It is finished. Paid in full. And it will move us to worship him for the rest of eternity. Now question. What did we learn from the two witnesses today? Number one, we have authority. We have the authority of Christ to go with the truth of Christ and people should know the truth and the truth will set them free. So church, let's do that. Let's be witnesses that go with the authority of Christ and the truth. And let's be witnesses that say, we're gonna tell you the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help us God. Second thing we learned today, if we're gonna be witnesses like the great witnesses in this chapter, we need the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to ask God, God, give us more. More of you and less of us. We need to be people that say, hey, hey, God, fill me afresh with your Holy Spirit. Jesus said, if your earthly fathers who are evil know how to give you good gifts, how much more will the Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? Again, we already have the Holy Spirit, but we need more. We need more power in our lives, more dependence upon the Holy Spirit to give us those words to say. Jesus said, when you stand before kings and other people and, 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 you, and you give them my message, Jesus said, the Spirit will give you what you need to say. We need to depend on the Spirit more to give us what we're supposed to say to people. Have you ever had that happen, by the way? You're sharing something with somebody, and as you're sharing, he goes, I didn't even know I knew that. You probably didn't, because the Spirit is giving you the words to say. But then we also learned this morning, very important, that we need power. We need to be people that are allowing the power of God's Word, the power of His Spirit, to change us, because the greatest witness we have is not what we say, but the way we live. Jesus said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And notice, he said, and you shall be my witnesses. Not just talk a witness, you're going to be a witness by your life. And then also we've learned from these witnesses, expect opposition. When you get some people hack, you know, hassling you about what you're saying or what you're standing for, or what you're believing or how you're living, hey, that's a good thing. Jesus actually said in the Sermon on the Mount, rejoice. When people persecute you, because the prophets before you, they persecute. It's a good thing if you're getting some opposition. It means you're living a godly life in Christ Jesus, and you're being a witness for Jesus Christ, right? And then the last thing I want you to think about this morning, this new year, Sunday, first Sunday of 2021. Are you right with God? Because the forgiveness only comes to people that receive Christ. The world says everybody's forgiven. Not true. Not true. You've got to be sprinkled with the blood of the Lamb by believing in Jesus Christ or cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. That's a better way to put it. And the moment you put a saving faith in Jesus Christ, you could receive from the high priest Jesus, you're forgiven. Paid in full, it is finished. But the Bible says, John 1, 12, but as many as received him, he gives the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. The Bible also says, Romans 9, 
or 10, 9 and 10, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. So my question for you this morning is, you got it? Do you got it? Have you received Christ? Do you know that you know that you know that you confessed him as your Lord and believed in your heart that God raised him from the dead? And has there been a time in your life where you open your heart to Jesus and you received him as your Savior and your Lord? And if there hasn't, I would say to you this morning, do it now. Now is the day of salvation, the Bible says. Now is the acceptable time. Don't put it off, man. Rapture could happen tonight. I pray it does. But my word to you this morning is if you're not right with God, get right. Because if you don't get right, you're going to get left. You're going to be in this mess that's coming to the world. And Christians, let's have an urgency in these last days to be lampstands for Jesus Christ. Let's have an urgency to lead as many people to Christ as possible so they can get out of here with us when we're raptured. So they go to heaven instead of hell. Let's not take this lightly. Let's be witnesses in 2021. May this year be a year that we see great harvest come in because we're witnesses for Jesus. Amen? And if you're not right with God, get right, man. Get right today. And I'll help you do that during this prayer time. I'll just, I'll just have you raise your hand and say, Pastor John, pray for me. And if you do that, I'll lead you in a prayer where you can get right with God and receive Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much, Lord, for your word this morning. Thank you, God, that your, your word is truth, and we're set free by the truth of your word, God. Thank you that your word enlightens us on how we're to believe and how we're to live, God. Thank you, too, Lord, that we could even learn from this future event of the Great Tribulation. We could learn from these two witnesses that are coming to be better witnesses for you also, God. And Lord, help us. Help us as Christians to take this seriously, the job you've given us to be ambassadors for Christ, pleading with the world to get right with you, God. And Father, I pray that you help us to be people that go as Christians with your authority, with your truth, Lord. Help us to be Christians that are ashamed, that we're not ashamed of the gospel that saved us. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Lord, help us to be Christians, too, that have that power of the Holy Spirit flowing in us and through us. Help us to have the, that olive oil of your spirit just flowing in us because we have an abiding, close relationship with Jesus. And as we abide in him, he abides in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray too that you help us to be people that are, are living what we believe. That's a strong combination, Lord, when we have authority, when we have the Holy Spirit, and then we have changed lives. Help us to walk that out, Lord, before a world that's watching. And Lord, I pray that as we face opposition, whether at work or with extended family or with our people or maybe in the neighborhoods we're living in. If there's people that are in darkness that are opposing us, Lord, help us to be gracious to them and love them, but help us to expect it too, Lord, because darkness doesn't like the light. All who live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Help us to stand strong in the midst of that, Father. And Father, I pray for anybody that might be here this morning that's not right with you, Lord, but wants to get right. In this first Sunday of 2021, may this be their Sunday, Lord, where they just receive Christ and they confess Jesus as their Lord and believe in their heart, God, that you raised Jesus from the dead. If you're here this morning and you want to just get things right with God and you don't know for sure that you've received Christ, may today be your day. And if, if you want to do that this morning, just raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. I'd love to pray for you right now that you might receive Christ and confess him as your Lord and your Savior.
If you're here this morning and you want to do that, just raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. And you can open your heart to Jesus. And you can get right. Don't put that off if you need to. Do it this morning. If he's knocking, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens the door, I'll come in. And I'll save him. And I'll dine with him. He says, We'll have fellowship with you. He loves you. So if you need to do that this morning, just raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. Father, thank you for this chapter on being a witness, Lord. Thank you, God, that you not only tell us to be a witness, you empower us to be witnesses by your Holy Spirit. Lord, help us not to be ashamed of what we believe in, this, even this week, in this new week of the new year, Lord. Help us to be, as these witnesses in Jerusalem in the future will be, help us to be witnesses that are olive trees for you, Lord, that are lampstands for you, God, that are filled with your Holy Spirit, that have the power of a changed life and also have the authority of Jesus Christ to be what you call us to be. Lord, I pray even this week that you give us some divine appointments to be witnesses for you, God. Help us to love people too, Lord. You, you say in your word, God, Jesus, that, that they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. And help us to walk in that love this week, God, your grace, your mercy, your love. Help us to have some deeds of kindness too where we help some people in Jesus' name. Lord, thank you so much for your word, God. It's, it's, it's the, it's the source for us uh, to be nourished spiritually, Lord. Thank you, God, that we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Help us to be spirit-filled Christians this week, Lord, that are singing and making melody in our hearts to you, Lord, that are speaking forth your word, that are also living in thanksgiving and relationships where we're subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Lord, thank you again, Father, for another Sunday. We could be in your house. We could experience you and your word and your truth and your spirit. Thank you again for your blessing, Lord. Thank you for the evidence of your goodness in all of our lives, Father. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's people sit. Amen. Church.